You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. Cranes as a security threat. EPA memo addresses cybersecurity risks to water systems. Oakland's ransomware incident becomes a data breach. Carding rises in Russian underworld. Sandworm's record in Russia's war. Rick Howard sits down with Andy Greenberg from Wired to discuss how Ukraine suffered more data wiping malware last year than anywhere ever. Dave Bittner speaks with Kathleen Smith of clearjobs.net to talk about hiring veterans and setting them and yourself up for success. And AI's latest misuse, bogus investment schemes. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, March 6th, 2023. The U.S. government is concerned that Chinese-made ship-to-shore cranes could pose a national security threat, the Wall Street Journal reports. The cranes in question are manufactured by the Chinese company ZPMC, which a U.S. official said makes around 80% of ship-to-shore cranes used at U.S. ports. The journal explains that these cranes contain sophisticated sensors that can register and track the provenance and destination of containers, prompting concerns that China could capture information about material being shipped in and out of the country. The government doesn't point to any instances of cranes actually being used for these purposes, But the defense policy bill passed by the U.S. Congress at the end of last year requires the Transportation Department's Maritime Administrator to conduct a study to determine whether these cranes could pose cybersecurity threats. Note that the immediate risk being reported is the threat of information security, not necessarily the operation of the cranes themselves. The U.S. Environmental Protection Agency on Friday issued a memorandum stressing the need for states to assess cybersecurity risk at drinking water systems to protect our public drinking water. The memorandum requires that states include cybersecurity when they conduct audits of water systems. The agency said in a statement, quote, While some public water systems have taken important steps to improve their cybersecurity, a recent survey and reports of cyber attacks show that many have not adopted basic cybersecurity best practices and are at risk of cyber attacks, whether from an individual, criminal collective, or a sophisticated state or state-sponsored actor. This memorandum requires states to survey cybersecurity best practices at public water systems. A ransomware attack last month on the city of Oakland, California, may have resulted in a data leak of stolen information. The Play Ransomware Group, who have staked their claim to the attack, shared Thursday on their leak site plans to release the stolen data on Saturday, the record reports. The group now seems to have made good on that threat. Bleeping Computer wrote Saturday that Play was releasing the stolen data, and this morning's San Francisco Chronicle says that the gang has in fact dumped some of the data online. Following the initial ransomware attack, Oakland decided to declare a state of emergency, InfoSecurity magazine wrote this morning. The February attack was said to impact payment of fees and taxes online within the city, as well as phone connections with city agencies, the San Francisco Standard reported Friday. InfoSecurity Magazine aptly observes that the city's disruptions from the attack, as well as its engagement in workstation restoration efforts, indicate that the gang probably hasn't received any ransomware payments. 
a free leak of some 2 million pay card numbers on the Russophone dark web criminal souk cheekily named Biting Cash seems to be a loss leader intended to draw attention to its wares. Many of the cards are nearing their expiration date, but there's still time for the criminals to use them. The record notes that stolen cards are often used to buy goods for subsequent resale, an activity that has grown increasingly attractive as the Russian economy has labored under the twin burdens of war and international sanctions. The record reviews a year's worth of action by Sandworm, the familiar GRU-run threat actor. Sandworm's most prominent contribution to the cyber phases of Russia's war against Ukraine has been deployment of wiper malware, which has challenged Ukraine's defenses but fallen short of expectations. Sandworm has not carried out attacks against infrastructure, particularly Ukraine's power grid, that had been widely expected. The group has used ransomware against targets of interest to Russia, notably in reprisal against organizations that have rendered material assistance to Ukraine. And finally, much of the security concern about ChatGPT and other advanced natural language artificial intelligence has concerned itself with the possibility of malign influence, as in chat becoming a deep fake, able to impersonate convincingly at scale. There are some signs of this happening, as the familiar grandchild scam, someone calls a grandparent, pretending to be a grandchild in trouble and needing cash, for example, may be getting an AI upgrade. The Washington Post wrote yesterday that some scammers are using voice impersonation to make their imposters more convincing. That kind of impersonation was foreseeable, of course, and it appears to have arrived. What's also foreseeable is that opportunities to invest in the brave new world of AI chatbots would be offered by investment scammers. Bitdefender this morning released a study of a recent scam in which the possibilities of passive income offered by an investment in a chatbot app were dangled in front of someone who's presumably a weary working stiff. The email subject lines are ones that you would expect. ChatGPT, new AI bot that has everybody going crazy about it. Or, a little less idiomatically, ChatGPT, new AI bot that has everyone in shock from it. Or, a bit more reflectively, new ChatGPT chatbot is making everyone crazy now, but it'll very soon be as mundane a tool as Google. None of this, of course, is connected with the actual ChatGPT, but the come-ons offer all kinds of investment advice. Bitdefender explains what's going on. Quote, The phony platform's chatbot begins with a short intro to its role in analyzing financial markets that can allow anyone to become a successful investor in global stocks. We agreed to play along and allow the automatic robot created by Elon Musk to help us get rich. Before we begin any investment journey, the chat needs to calculate our daily income. End quote. And from there, of course, there's the usual attempt to set the hook and reel in the fish. That fish would be regular Janes and Joes like you and me, friend. Take Bitdefender's advice on this one and spit the hook. Coming up after the break, Rick Howard sits down with Andy Greenberg from Wired to discuss how Ukraine suffered more data-wiping malware last year than anywhere. Dave Bittner speaks with Kathleen Smith of ClearedJobs.net to talk about hiring veterans and setting them and yourself up for success. Stick around. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. 
Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications, so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. I'm joined by Andy Greenberg. He's the senior writer at Wired and a cybersecurity canon Hall of Fame book author for Sandworm, A New Era of Cyber War and the Hunt for the Kremlin's Most Dangerous Hackers, and his most recent book, Tracers in the Dark, The Global Hunt for the Crime Lords of Cryptocurrency, is a canon Hall of Fame candidate, which I highly recommend, by the way. It's the best cybercrime book of the last decade, in my opinion. Andy, welcome back to the CyberWire. Thank you, Rick. Glad to be here again. And thank you for those kind, very kind plugs. You're quite welcome. So it's been a year since uh, Russian leadership decided to invade Ukraine. And based on previous success stories that you documented so well in your book, Sandworm, most of us thought that with this invasion, we were going to see the state-of-the-art Russian offensive cyber operations. But that's not really what we've been seeing over the last year. And you wrote this fantastic Wired article called Ukraine suffered more wiper malware in 2022 than anywhere. So what's going on over there? Well, you know, I think you're right. We did expect, I mean, many of us expected anyway, a kind of not Petya 2 or like a bad rabbit or Olympic destroyer. These these GRU self-replicating forms of malware that have caused just true digital devastation in the past. I mean, NotPetya is the worst cyber attack in history, caused $10 billion worldwide and before spreading beyond Ukraine's borders, you know, truly carpet bombed the entire Ukrainian internet. But instead, I feel like what we're seeing is the Russian military's hackers just trying to keep up with the pace of a new kind of cyber war, one that is really like a a, a true tandem cyber and physical war. I mean, um, I think that, you know, there has in fact been a, a real cyber war unfolding in Ukraine by some measures, you know, the most active in history in terms of like the sheer number of data destroying malware samples, but they've been like really simple, repetitive, kind of relentless short-term attacks rather than these kind of masterpieces of, of code that we saw from hacker groups like Sandworm targeting Ukraine in the past. You mentioned in the article that it felt like they were prepared for the, the, you know, the line of departure. Uh, They went after the satellite comms and that looked, you know, mature and well thought out. But it felt like they weren't ready for. They thought it was going to be over after that, and they now they're just kind of uh, making stuff up as they go. Is that a fair assessment of what <laughs> they've been doing? <laughs> that's a that's a particularly like uh, fair and ungenerous way to put it. I think, which is you know, <laughs> but but true. I mean, yes, in the in the first weeks of the war, they did like carry out this attack on satellite modems, Viasat modems that required some knowledge, some specific knowledge of the embedded, you know, form of Linux that these modems used that seems to have been prepared well in advance. They also used like a, a wiper 
uh, tool, Hermetic Wiper, that had a, a stolen certificate to make it, you know, um, harder to detect and and defend against. But even then, like with some of the wiper, sorry, the like Hermetic family of wipers, we saw some really serious problems in their code. I mean, ESET told me that Hermetic Ransom, which was a, a, like a kind of similar tool designed to look like ransomware, was really sloppily coded. And Hermetic Wizard, this spreading tool that was designed to kind of like automatically spread Hermetic Wiper, was just like really shoddily written in a way that even I can detect. I mean, it only tried three different super simple hard-coded passwords in its attempts to spread from one machine to the next. I mean, that's just not the same level of care that we saw with these previous GRU Russian hacker worms. I know, and the way you described it, I loved it. Like, we've seen so many versions of the, I mean, it's a volume of wiper attacks. And I love the phrase you used in the article, Andy, the Cambrian explosion of wipers. What does that mean? I'd love that line. Yeah, well, it's like, you know, <laughs> these Russian hackers have been slowly evolving their tools. And then, you know, in the in the history of evolution, I'm not like great at this biology stuff, but there was the Cambrian <laughs> explosion where suddenly there were like, you know, instead of just this slow evolution, there was this like explosion of thousands and thousands of new species and we're seeing, in fact, dozens of new species of destructive malware hit Ukraine. But, you know, they are not, I was just describing the kind of somewhat sophisticated attacks that they launched in the first weeks of the war. But very quickly, they kind of evolved into these just, uh, you know, a plethora of super simple wipers, kind of more simple over time even. And at times they just kind of used um, just tweaks to the, one of the simplest wipers called Caddy Wiper, and just use it repeatedly, but in, in this kind of relentless fashion. Uh, I mean, Mandiant described to me how they are sometimes hitting the same organization more than once, or like doing, you know, kind of doing espionage on one uh, network and then coming back and wiping it, or wiping it once sitting on the edge of the network on like a firewall or a router or something. And then hitting it again with another wiper later. I mean, so these are these are still like impactful attacks, but they're just kind of like brutal, relentless, repetitive, simple attacks rather than you know these years long yeah. plans pieces. Take down of, the entire infrastructure attacks. It's not what exactly. those are. They're, they're they're nuisance attacks. They're annoyance attacks, right? I think that they're more than nuisances. I mean, they're true disruption, but they're they're just like a different pace, and mm-hmm. and it does seem like Russian hackers are kind of just struggling in a way to, to write malware fast enough to keep up with the pace of a physical war, which is very different from the Russian-Ukrainian cyber war that you know lasted from 2014 to 2022. So, let's, so the big question in my mind then, the Russians aren't having a lot of success in, in the cyberland in this war. They've had a little bit of success at the beginning, but not that much. So the question on my mind is, is that because the Russians suddenly became incompetent? or the Ukrainians are so good at this that they're stopping everything or somewhere in the middle. What do you think, Andy? I think, you know, it's, it's not even in the middle. It's just both. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's, and it's not exactly that like Russia's cyber attacks are failing. They're just simple and a little less interesting than they used to be from a journalistic <laughs> perspective, at least. They're just these kind of blunt force objects designed to, destroyed, you know, computers in one target network, and sometimes not even that many computers, but just as many as they can in the short time frame that they're given as the war evolves and as their targeting kind of constantly changes. So, but yes, I think you also have to give credit to the Ukrainian defenders who have really seen, you know, they seem to have risen to the occasion and evolved themselves, maybe learned from 
being Russia's petri dish for cyber attacks for eight, nine years now. And also, I think they've gotten serious help from the West. I mean, we know that that you know U.S. intelligence agencies have kind of parachuted in, in some cases, not necessarily to Ukraine, but into Europe to train Ukrainian defenders. I mean, Nakasone at NSA and Cyber Command has said that. Well, I hate to say it this way, in this horrible war with all the people dying on both sides, here's a ray of sunshine, is that it looks like it's possible to defeat the Russians in cyberspace. That's what it looks like to me. So am I wrong about that? I'm not sure that they're being defeated. I mean, I think that they're being countered and the, you know, the, mm-hmm. the extent of their damage is being limited, but it's a kind of grinding war of attrition. And to be clear, it's like in, in the midst of a much worse, larger scale physical grinding war of attrition that is truly tragic. So I think uh, in, in its kind of physical and human toll, I mean, I think that um, that has caused people to treat this cyber war as a kind of sideshow, rightfully, I think. But it doesn't mean that if it weren't, if it were taking place somewhere else, I mean, if, if a different country was launching this volume of destructive malware against another country, it would still be perhaps like an unprecedented event in the history of, of cybersecurity. It's just kind of getting lost in, rightfully so, I think, in the context of this hugely catastrophic and tragic physical war that's happening in Ukraine. Well, it's good stuff, Andy. And your article is entitled, Ukraine Suffered More Wiper Malware in 2022 Than Anywhere. Thanks for doing it. I recommend everybody go read it over on the Wired website. It's fantastic. Andy, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you, Rick. Glad to talk. And joining me once again is Kathleen Smith. She's the Chief Outreach Officer at ClearJobs.net. Kathleen, it's always great to welcome you back to the show. Uh, I want to touch today on the idea of hiring veterans. I know this is something that uh, is near and dear to your heart and that you take uh, very seriously. Where do we stand today when it comes to opportunities for veterans? We have lots of opportunities. We have lots of programs that support veterans finding corporate opportunities either in the commercial space or in the government contracting space. I think we still have a lot farther to go in making sure that the transition from working in the military to working in the corporate world is a lot more smoother. There's always been this statistic from the Department of Labor, which does not change and has not changed in 20 years, which is that 80% of veterans, when they transitioned, changed jobs within the first year, meaning that Hmm. they found a job immediately after they were on terminal leave from the military. And then it just wasn't a right fit. And it was either not a right fit because the questions were not asked by the veteran or more importantly, that the employer did not take the time to make sure that the veteran had all of the things they needed to integrate into the corporate world, that there were not all of the questions asked or answered during the recruiting process to make sure that 
both parties, the veteran and the company, knew exactly what they were getting in for. And it's also just understanding the mindset of a veteran. You know, they, we talk about frequently the skill sets, the training, the certification, the leadership, the fact that they'll get the job done, that they'll show up. Right. So many good things, so many good attributes that come out of that, that experience uh, that these folks can lead with coming into an opportunity, right? Right. But at the same time, they're used to having somebody, they're used to having a sense of community, a sense of serving mm-hmm. the mission, and always having somebody watch their back. And they, they know where they fit within the organization. And those are four key things that I don't see happen for many of the veterans I see transition into a new company. There are several programs out there that sort of help a veteran fit in, but these are the requirements I believe that an employer really needs to look at. And they're not things that require a lot of investment of resources. It's, you know, interviewing and finding out how many veterans you already have in your employ and finding out Mm. how they can support your veterans coming in. It's also finding out from them how the work that you're doing, how does that translate into the MOS, the, you know, way that the military categorizes specific kind of work. So there's a lot of work that I find that companies can do that's very easy to do and they don't do it. And that's my biggest frustration is that, you know, there are so many easy things that a company can do to make sure that they're hiring this talent, that they're retaining this talent and they're not doing. And I'm, I'm not trying to beat employers up, but I'm trying to say you have an access to phenomenal talent that can do an amazing amount of work for you, either if you're in the government space, if you're in the commercial space, especially in the cybersecurity space, you can definitely have somebody who is used to working on the front lines, who actually knows how to protect assets, knows how to pull together a Mm. team, knows how to assess and take responsibility and lead the team. You know, one of my dear friends, Matt DeVoe, you know, he and I talked years ago about if you took somebody who was a veteran and didn't know cybersecurity but knew a variety of other things and put them in the front lines of cybersecurity, would they work well? And hands down, they would because they know how to do incident response. They know how to react. They know how to develop an action plan once they see an incident happening. I'm constantly frustrated when I hear of a veteran who's trying to find a job, has all these skill sets, has all of the certifications, but just can't get a company to talk to him or her. Are there resources that you can recommend for companies who want to get this right? Are, are there, you know, are there sources for, for the, to help walk them through that, make sure that they have the things they need to not, uh, not drop the ball here? I think, as I said earlier, the biggest resource that they would have is look internally and ask the question, Mm. how many of you that work here are veterans? 
and what are we mm-hmm. doing right and what are we doing wrong? Because I can point you to a variety of programs, hiring our heroes and corporate partners and a variety of others, but that's not going to be specific to each company. And you have the resource within you within your company to be able to say, do we have 10 people from the Navy? Do we have eight people from the Army? You know, why did 10 people from the Navy who retired from the Navy come to work for us? Okay, obviously we have an affinity to these specific people. We have an affinity to their specific kind of work skills. And then have them reach out through their networks and like, I really like working here and this is what they've done. And being able to ask the veterans, what could we do better? You know, what are we doing wrong? Because you can go and buy a training program and or you can hire a consultant, but you'd still have to customize it to, you know, your mm-hmm. particular mm-hmm. company. So I'm always amazed when someone says, gosh, I don't even know how many veterans work for us. And then they turn around and they find out that, you know, 40% of their workforce is military and most of them are from the Marine Corps and all of a sudden, you know, okay, we have a solution here. All we have to do is have a conversation. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, interesting insights as always. Kathleen Smith, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. The Cyberwire podcast is a production of N2K Networks, proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technology. This episode was produced by Liz Irvin and senior producer Jennifer Iben. Our mixer is me, with original music by Elliot Peltzman. The show was written by John Petrick, our executive editor is Peter Kilpie, and I'm Trey Hester, filling in for Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Hi, everybody. It's Maria Varmazas here, your host over at T-Minus Space Daily, and sometimes a guest on Hacking Humans, too. We here at N2K CyberWire work hard to bring you concise, intelligence-driven news and commentary, and we'd like to know how we're doing. Please take a few minutes to complete our audience survey and share your feedback to help us continue to grow and meet your needs. 
visit cyberwire.com slash survey. That's cyberwire.com slash survey to get started. Thanks so much for your input as we reach for the stars. It means the universe to us. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire. <laughs> 